0: Hello, and welcome to episode 89 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me as always is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Um, You can always find all episodes of the podcast at podcast.tennisabstract.com. You can find me on Twitter at TennisAbstract. You can find Carl on Twitter at Carl Bialik and... Carl also, at least in theory, has a tennis podcast called 30 Love, um, which you should check out. I keep hearing rumors there's going to be a new episode soon, although they have yet to come to fruition. But some other housekeeping stuff, uh, as we discussed in, in the last episode, we are starting the Tennis Abstract Podcast Book Club. And the first book we're reading is A Handful of Summers by Gordon Forbes. So in a couple weeks from now, around the middle of the month, we're going to do an episode discussing the book. So. Uh, you should definitely read it. It, I haven't read it yet. Carl has. I think we can, we can say it's worth your time. Uh, if you have thoughts about what we should talk about or you have thoughts about the book, please do share them with us and we'll, we'll try to work things in as appropriate. If you have suggestions about other things for the book club, then we'd love to hear those as well. We'll aim to do maybe one of these every month or so. And a final note, you might know that Carl and I are also doing a coronavirus podcast called Dangerous Exponents. Uh, We've got a new episode coming out today alongside this tennis episode, so you can check that out at DangerousExponents.com. So all that out of the way, today we're going to talk about some of the ongoing work I've been doing building out a women's tennis database, and we're going to sort of flip the script. So in, in lieu of a 30 Love episode, we'll call this a Love 30 episode where uh, Carl interviews me. So, Carl, do your worst.
1: All right, I, I'm excited for this one because I've been seeing the the fruits of Jeff's labor adding data on 1960s women's tennis to Tennis Abstract and, and really digging into it each time another season is, is added and have had a lot of questions. So, Jeff, let me start by asking... About what the state of sort of data and uh, you know structured information about the players, the tournaments, the results from women's tennis was throughout its history uh, until you got involved with this project. What what was known? What was out there? What what format was it in? Uh, what what was state at play?
0: Well, the term structured information is is definitely on a continuum. So in a perfect world, we have something like the the, the data I've released on GitHub, which is pretty complete back to the, let's say 1990 and fairly complete back to now, back to the the seventies, but it had long been pretty complete back to about the mid to late seventies. So that means that you can, you can run queries on women's matches at Wimbledon back to the the, the whole open era. Uh, But outside of the slams, outside of of the top level of the WTA tour uh, before about 1990, um, this stuff didn't exist in a form you could query or a form you could easily look up. I mean, the WTA site is not that great. So if you want to know what happened at a challenger level tournament in 1978, that's not the place to go. Uh, The ITF site has some stuff, but same limitations. So that stuff was basically hidden from view for most of us who wouldn't really, really go hunting for it and a couple of sources have come along that improve the situation because a lot of this data exists in in the sense that it's out there, but you really have to dig for it. So a lot of information was published in in newspapers. Most of our listeners probably know that newspapers used to be a lot fatter and and have a lot more. Bordering on the trivial information. So the New York Times would publish tons of results from around the world I mean every local paper might have a note on like this is a tennis result from yesterday It's not necessarily the Wimbledon final, but this is something or here's our local tournament Here are the results yesterday at our local tournament including including doubles mixed doubles juniors, so on um, And then there are these annuals that were published every year and they had a lot of results as well so It's out there, but unless you have access to a really good library or a microfilm machine or now a newspapers.com, that's pretty hard to dig for. So the sort of middle ground which has made my project possible is there, there is or this was this giant project at tennisforum.com called in, in a section of that forum called Blast from the Past where a fairly small number of volunteers went through the annuals, went through the New York Times, maybe looked at a few other papers and just typed out all these results. So you look at this forum and you find hundreds of events from, I mean, every year back to the 19th century, but for for our purposes, particularly from the 60s and 70s, where everything they found, there's, there's no cutoff. If they found a tennis match at some, you know, at the fourth event of the year in Auckland, New Zealand, they write down the final and the score and the surface if they can find it. So I don't know whether that quite qualifies as structured information, but my effort has been to take some of this stuff that's sort of borderline structured and try to turn it into something that's a lot more structured and and more properly databased with the the players uniquely ID'd and turn it into something that we can can actually work with that's more easily searchable and queryable.
1: In theory, how far back could you go? How how many years uh, that weren't previously part of your database or any database that we know about could could you add in and, and how far back do you think you're gonna go?
0: Well, as I said, the, like, where we were at before is I had some stuff back to 68. I had pretty decent stuff back to the late 70s and I can say I'm more or less complete back to 1990. So I'm filling in a lot of those gaps now. Um, and in, in theory, you can go back to the very beginning and this, this blast from the past project at tennisforum.com, they did just that. So I'm not sure how complete it is, but they have a lot of results back to the 19th century every single year between the beginning of, of lawn tennis as we know it. And now, and that's an enormous project. I mean, this has been enormously time consuming for me to get as far as I have. Um, and at, at the moment, I've, I've published stuff, like I've been putting up these blog posts that, that announce each new season when I sort of finalize it. Um, I'm a few years ahead of that in terms of getting it in the database and pending a little bit of proofreading. So I'm, ba- I'm working on 1956 right now. And I'd like to get back to 1946. I mean, there was a fairly good not, not good, good is the wrong word. There's a fairly clear, um, break point at world war two, uh, where Wimbledon wasn't played for five years, I think. And, and obviously tons of other events, especially in Europe were not played during that time. So even though there was some tennis during those years, I feel like 1946 is a good point for me to stop and catch my breath and say, the resulting data set is cool and really useful. And maybe at some point in the future, I'll feel differently about looking at the 20s and 30s and and pushing this all the way back.
1: Who are some of the people most affected? Like we had complete or sort of hopefully complete information on women who started their career, you know, in the period that you described where you pretty much had all the information. So who are some of the people who, are or going to be partially or completely kind of restored so that you can really look at their, their body of work um, overall in a way that, that wasn't possible before.
0: Well, the really big names are Margaret Court and Billie Jean King. And one thing that's interesting about Billie Jean King's legacy is, you know, Obviously, she's such an important figure for so many reasons, and a lot of people who might know her just from the Battle of the Sexes movie will think of her as as a key figure in in professionalizing women's tennis, which she was. Uh, but she had been a top level player for almost a decade before that. You know, Margaret Court also a decade before that. So for both of those two women, at least half of their career was m- mostly hidden from from at least from databases. I mean, we know that. Margaret Court won all the slams she did. We have some idea of 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 how she performed outside of that. You could find a list of all of the titles that she won in a non database format. Same thing with Billie Jean King. That the results are out there, but not in a very easily queryable format. And and yeah, it, it's it's huge. And, and, we can say certain things about Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova. We've always had a pretty good grasp on mm-hmm. on what their careers looked like. Although I am filling in a few gaps for them as well. Um, but for for Margaret Court Billy Billie Jean King, I don't think that anybody really had an idea of how good they were in the nineteen sixties. And I, I don't. I, I mean that in an analytical sense. Obviously, people knew they were great and could talk about how they compared to other players of the past. But in terms of of putting a number on. How good Margaret Court was in 1965. We just didn't have the tools to do that. And that was one of the things that drove me to to push this database back is like, I'm really curious. I mean, looking at the numbers from the 70s that we did have slightly better information for, I mean, Margaret Court was still great. Billie Jean King was a really, really good, verging on dominant player. Uh, but imagine if you, imagine if you looked at, Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal's numbers from let's say age 27 on and you only really had rumors and bits of information from before that I mean people would would drop everything they're doing (laughs) to fill in the gaps and that that's kind of how I feel about this and I mean that that's just the tip of the iceberg there's so many of the other other important women early in the open era uh who had notable careers before that like Nancy Ritchie is another one of the original 9 and and she was in several slam finals in in the mid 60s so so the fact that the the line that we drew before came at 1968 for the open era or 1978 1970 for the Virginia Slims tour the fact that that's where the lines were drawn meant that A lot of her accomplishments were kind of swept aside. I mean, people—we can still look up that she did what she did at the Grand Slams, but um, but we're just starting to to learn better how good of a player she was uh, before the Open Era kicked in.
1: Another name that's been popping out at me is—I've been scanning these season pages and seeing the calendar and. Uh, seeing who was, was winning the most matches and the most titles, is Maria Bueno. And I, I had seen her name because she'd won a lot of slams, but it's it's really hitting me when seeing her season results and number of titles and everything else. Uh, and I my sense is she doesn't get the... I mean, maybe this is just me... Uh, assuming that that my level of knowledge of her is is standard, but uh, it seems like she doesn't necessarily get the the modern um, credit that she she should. W- what could you what could you say about her? And, and are there others who, like if we if we had just had their their stats and season results all along and could see how they measured up, um, and maybe if we had more video too that we we'd be appreciating more that have sort of popped for you from these seasons.
0: Well, definitely, yeah. Um, I could I could go on about the the lack of and the need for video, and I, I think that's a big factor. Is is if you can't watch a player, you're not going to get really excited about them. I mean, there's a small percentage of people out there who are like me who you know grew up getting excited about 19th century baseball players or something. But I mean, it's it's a rare person who can say, "Ooh, this is my favorite player who I've never seen play," and who in extreme cases who died 70 years ago or, or players who, who are now, you know, occasionally doing exhibitions as 80 year olds or something. Um, but yeah, Maria Bueno was multi-slam winner. She, I'm trying to remember the exact story and I think it was 61 or 62. She, she came down with, with a really serious illness. I think it was right before the French Open. Uh, and And she was basically stuck in a hotel room for six weeks or two months until she recovered. And her good friend, Darlene Hard, who's another name who belongs in this conversation is one of the top players of her era. They were frequent doubles partners, really good friends. Darlene Hard skipped some tournaments to to nurse her and the Brazilian Federation, and this is an era when the national federations pretty much ran tennis and in some cases ran these women's lives. Um, The Brazilian Federation kind of abandoned her at this hotel in Paris when she was really ill. And eventually she got better enough to go home, um, but it was a long recovery. She didn't play for, for a year or two after that. And I, I have these provisional ELO results from back to 1958 or so now. And Maria Bueno was off and on the the number one player in the world from late 1959 to late 1961. So I'm guessing that the event I'm talking about is 1962 when she got sick, but she didn't come back to quite the level she she was at before, and part of that story is just the existence of Margaret Court, but but she came back to playing very high level tennis. Uh, so I mean she's she's not only a great player who I think most most tennis fans don't even know about, but I mean it's a great story. Then and that that's one of the things that I keep stumbling on is I mean. It, it, it's fun to look at the numbers and it's really useful and maybe even important to, to just have the numbers and the results. But I mean, these, these are also, I mean, it's obvious, but these are also real people with really interesting stories. And in some cases, because tennis wasn't the the industry that it is now, in some cases, the stories are even more interesting than they are now because the the players were, were more well-rounded. Maybe their, their families were more well-rounded. They would have their toes in more, more different things, in comparison to players now who are in some cases just kinda tennis-playing robots who are raised to this task that they now perform at this insanely high level.
1: Yeah, you've been tweeting some of your fun findings. Uh, It seems like you could sort of cast a a play or a movie or, I don't know, an an all-star team of incredible women in fields other than tennis from, from the women who have now been added to your database during those years. Was, I, I don't know how much you've dug into this part, but was, was tennis like, cited by them or in their obituaries for, in the case of those who have died as something very important? Or, or was it like a passing phase uh, before they went on to do something that seems very different?
0: It varies a lot. Um, and it, it's really striking how much it varies. I mean, as I've as I'm doing this, like whenever I come across a a player's name for the first time, I'll just do a quick Google search. I'll, I'll see if, I mean, sometimes I just, I don't know whether they're famous or not. I mean, I don't, I don't have a great knowledge of women's tennis from the forties or fifties. So sometimes I'll, I'll think a name is unfamiliar and find out that, you know, she won three double slams or something. Um, so I, I, and I'm also looking for date of birth. Maybe there's a picture that shows whether she's a right-handed or left-handed. So just really basic biographical information. But all of which means I've read a lot of obituaries lately. And some of them are you know people who went on to become a doctor or a professor or something. And it will, it will include three paragraphs on their career as a New Hampshire junior tennis champion or something like that. Uh, other times, a player with a similar career went on to similar other things or maybe even less notable other things and there will be half a sentence that said she was also a Florida junior tennis champion in her teens or something like that or she she grew up among a tennis playing family and those are the really frustrating ones because it's tough to know for sure you have even found the right person I mean the number of the number of obituaries that say someone was an avid tennis player I mean it must number in the millions and of course most of these people never played professional or high-level amateur tennis um, but I mean, it, it it seems like the sort of thing that if if you use a really approximate definition of of the elite, I mean, let's just say business leaders, politicians, things like that, and their families, tennis has been really important for a long time. I mean, in, in we think of golf more in that sense now, I think, um, maybe unfortunately, because Trump is doing so much of it, but we've always thought of golf as being this sort of elite sport. But... Uh, tennis used to be even more of an elite sport than it is now, and that meant that it was sort of a calling card that you know, th- being a junior tennis champion wasn't just a way of saying I was a great athlete, but it meant that I excelled at something that was important in your world. Uh, and I get the sense that there's still some of that, some of that kind of signaling going on, even with people who haven't picked up a racket in decades.
1: Maybe from a, from a different part of the tennis world, someone you've also been tweeting about and it will certainly not coincidentally be covered by the years you've chosen to focus on initially, Althea Gibson. Uh, what, are, what are you excited about there? What do you think um, we'll find? And, and also, how do you decide? I mean, maybe she's a good example for talking about how do you decide or how does Blast from the Past decide which events should be included?
0: Well, I'm super excited to find out how good Althea Gibson was and for how long. I mean, we have some numbers about the slams she won or maybe even the tournaments she won. Uh, but I, I think the the last full season that I, I at least provisionally imported, she, she was something like 66 and two. And one of those two losses was an exhibition. I mean, the numbers might be a little bit off, but it's just out of this world numbers. And Again, this is super provisional since I, I don't have anything before January 1st, 1957 yet, but um, around around that time, she would have been number one in the world, at least according to ELO, and then she hung on to the number one rating basically until she left amateur tennis, so the beginning of 1959 or so. So so she had, hmm, the number I'm looking at doesn't quite add up, but, oh, I, I see. So she hung on for about a year and a half. Um, to the number one rating, but right before she went pro. And I'm sure as we go back further, we're going to find some more times and she was already winning a lot before that. And yeah, as, as you suggest, um, 1946 as a, as a temporary stopping point that has some advantages, uh, just because it's a clear breaking point, but also, yeah, that gives you most, or maybe all about the Gibson's career. And yeah, I think one of the most interesting things we're finding is, is just how to compare the top players across eras. I mean, you, uh, we're always going to be able to debate about what it means to be number one now versus number one in the 60s. I mean, we're never going to stop debating Federer versus Laver or Djokovic versus Laver or whatever. And you can have the same sort of debates about Serena versus Margaret Court. But even to have those debates, you need to have more numbers than we have now. So uh, a queer I ran yesterday just turned out that at least provisionally, I have... Margaret Court in the number one position for 536 weeks, uh, which is, I mean, it's not just, the, it wouldn't just be the record, it would be just far beyond the record. And we don't know just how much better Althea Gibson was than her peers by by some measure like this. Um, to the other part of your question uh, about what we include and what we don't, that's a really interesting one. And the the blast from the past volunteers, as far as I can tell, they're pretty much including everything they find. So if the results were printed in the New York Times or a year-end annual, they type it out almost without fail. And sometimes that I haven't included every single thing that, that is available. So for instance, they might have the state championship from several states around the U.S. And these are just amateur tournaments, maybe they're happening at the same time as the French Open or something like that. So some of them are are very low level. Um, Maybe every single name would be someone who doesn't turn up elsewhere in the database. I mean, sometimes I'll see tournaments from from Spokane, Washington, where I'm from. I'm like, of course, there was no good tennis in Spokane, Washington in 1956. So I mean, why do we even care? But the pertinent example here is what black players were doing during that time. And... The, the, this, the highlight of, of the black tennis season was the American Tennis Association Championships every summer, um, in July or August. Althea won that tournament 10 years in a row. Uh, a couple of years after that, Arthur Ashe came along and won several editions of that tournament. And aside from Althea Gibson and Arthur Ashe, almost every single player who participated didn't go on to any kind of career outside of that. I mean, some of those years, the, the winners of the tournaments got a, an entry into the US Open or the US National Championships as it was then. Uh they might play in some local tournaments otherwise, but a lot of the clubs where other tournaments were played were closed to them. Even if the the USCA or its precursor um uh, wasn't technically segregated, uh, it was impossible for black players to to play at many of the events. So in one sense, it it feels like these events are only tenuously connected to the rest of the database, because most of the players don't show up in other tournaments. But it also seems really important to have that history recorded, uh, not just because Althea Gibson played there, although that might be reason enough, but because I mean, these are really significant events for a portion of the population that w- was interested in tennis, uh, was pursuing tennis uh, pretty seriously in some cases, but didn't have other outlets. So. Some of those results never turned up in annuals. They weren't printed in the New York Times besides maybe a final. And that's where I've started really going down this uh, this research rabbit hole in in searching other newspapers uh, for whatever results I can find. And, and only for one or two years have I been able to come up with anything close to complete results. But if, if you dig around enough, then you can find some of the results, maybe the semifinals, maybe Althea Gibson's various matches. And I mean, I don't have a good answer about where exactly the line should be drawn between what belongs in a database of tennis history and what doesn't. Um, we can argue about that. Uh, hopefully we won't argue about it, but you can debate that a lot, but this is the sort of thing that seems to me me, to be an absolute no brainer that this history, needs to be recorded, um, regardless of what analytical value it might have.
1: Yeah, and I agree. And um, I I think it's great that the Blast from the Past approach is to include everything and then let other people decide what what they want to include from that set. What is your relationship with them and what do they make of your project?
0: As far as I can tell their project is largely dormant. There were a few years in the early part of the last decade, I guess, where there was a ton of activity. Um and every there's one person who occasionally will go make updates, but a lot of the forum threads I'm looking at have been inactive for for years. So, I haven't reached out to anyone um Anyone there? I did join, and I've started to. When I do do research, like the the ATA Championships and some other things, I find I've been adding it back there because I, mean, I feel like if they're going to be the the collectors of all of this tennis history, then then I should contribute to that uh, in what little way I can. Uh, but it seems like there was a a big push for a few years to just. It combined this the sources that were available then since other people had had started projects like this or, or done them for certain years and not others and and there was some sort of collective enthusiasm for it for a while among a core of maybe a half dozen people uh, but like many forum projects from earlier eras of the internet it's it doesn't seem to really be ongoing so so hopefully having some new blood going in there will, will sort of spur some other people back to more action. Um, the other factor is that to some extent they are done. I mean, you're never really done with something like this, but you can be done with going through the annuals and typing up results or going through the New York Times. You can be done, done with that. And I think most reasonable people would look at the results that they've gathered or they had gathered 10 years ago and say, oh, this is good enough. <laughs> I mean, this is this is maybe three, 4,000 match results per year for over a hundred years. like. Okay, that that's that's fine, and in general, I agree with that. It's fine for my purposes, except there are some of these other some of these gaps, like the ATA championships, that I think are worth more time to fill in. And probably as we go back, we'll I'll find more more gaps or just learning more about what what's available, more about women's tennis in general. Find some other gaps that need to be filled in, like for instance, they they don't generally include. Um, junior events, and I mean that's a that's a rabbit hole of enormous, dangerous proportions. But I would I would like to have you know, junior Grand Slam finals, or maybe the junior Grand Slam records of someone like Margaret Court or Billie Jean King. Uh, you don't have to include every single possible match for it to be worthwhile, but it would be it would be good to have more of that. And that's one of the few things I could see them continuing on and, and building on.
1: Maybe we just have to find the right forum or Internet Archive backup of a deleted forum for that. And, you know, this is somewhat how history works and how analysis works, that they do the project and then put it somewhere where you can find it. And I'm wondering what what are the layers of up- I don't want to say on top of exactly, but like building on what you've done, you're putting this on GitHub. You're inviting people to to take this data and work with it. Like, what what are some things people have done with with the data you've shared in the past? What are some things you could imagine doing that you're not personally planning to do?
0: Uh, I'm not really sure. Um, I mean, in terms of what I'm planning on doing, I've been I, I, I've been running Elo ratings on all of this with every year that I add so you can find that on on the season pages and on on the player pages so that's a very natural thing to do when you get a new data set of sports information to generate more rankings generate the same stats you know now uh, and beyond that I'm really not sure I mean I, I and that's part of the reason that I'm I'm putting it out there uh, I've been a little underwhelmed over the last several years about uh, what people have done with the other data that I've published or just tennis data in general. Like, I think this is probably just repeating other conversations we've had, but like, I wish there were more people doing more interesting work in more different ways. Um, uh, which isn't to say the work that is being done isn't good. It's just that I, you know, I, there could be a lot more. It feels like there, there must be a lot more. And the more people are involved, the more different sort of questions you generate. Um, and part of what makes that valuable is the fact that, the small number of people doing it now are going to be limited in what we can think of. But in terms of why I put it there and what the value is, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be analysis. I mean, it feels like we're talking in terms of analytics because that's largely what I do and what this podcast is about. And when you put data sets on GitHub, that's largely why you're doing it. But I mean, I always come back to the fact that I, I got to doing tennis stats, as tennis history from baseball. And there's been this impulse in baseball history going back almost to the very beginning, but definitely to the 1910s or so, that you need to have all the stats in one place. That's what the history is. It's these rows and rows and rows of numbers. And in until I started doing this, if you wanted to to look up a source of of Billie Jean King's matches from 1963, then you'd have a lot of work to do just to get to that point. And it's not an encyclopedia in the way that baseball encyclopedias used to be, but Tennis Abstract or the GitHub data that I'm publishing, like, I think it serves that same sort of purpose that if you're writing a newspaper article about Billie Jean King, and you want to know more about her early career, then bam, there it is. And the fact that it's taken decades to get to that point. Like that, that seems criminally negligent to me on the part of the tennis federations, but um, at least we have it now and, and it's getting better. So I think that just establishing the historical record is such an enormous and important first step that like, even if there's no analytics, then it's still valuable and something that I'm interested in doing.
1: Honorable work. Blash from the past seems very, or solely women's tennis focused, unless I'm I'm reading it wrong. What what would be not that men's sports needs necessarily more people filling in the caps uh, relative to women's sports, which are, are just so, uh, so under supported in terms of having that sort of statistical record in history. I mean, tennis is probably way ahead of many others, but. Do you have kind of a wish list of what you'd want to add to your men's database, uh, such as I think we've talked before about the the various pro uh, tours and head-to-heads of the greats in the in the '30s, '40s, '50s, '60s. Anything, anything else missing, and any sources that that could serve a similar purpose for men's tennis?
0: Um. W- well, the, to start with what's available now for men's tennis is a lot better. Um, uh, just starting with the open era, the ATP has not always been great, but it has improved itself. Um, uh, so for the open era, what is available is pretty complete. I, th- I think there's 1968's not a really clear starting point. There's still some gaps in the first few years, but let's say 1971 or 1972 men's tennis history is well represented by the ATP website. Um, uh, but then you come back to the same issue you find with women's tennis, which is, it's like you drop off a cliff before the beginning of the open era. And because men's situation is better uh, at the beginning of the open era, that cliff is even steeper. And it's just like with Margaret and Billie Jean King, you have a really obvious example of Rod Labor. I mean, a player that we talk about all the time or is in the news all the time. I mean, it's Roger, one of Roger Federer's heroes. It seems like this is someone who we should know everything about. Uh, and if, if you go looking for Rod Laver's 1967 results, I haven't tried it, but you should, you should Google it. And I'm guessing you don't really find anything coherent. And I mean, one reason for that is simply that it's not covered by the ATP. The other reason for that is like you say there, he was a pro at a time where the tennis establishment was amateur. So, so there's there's two aspects to the problem and i mean you asked about my wish list and my wish list is always everything but the the easiest thing putting easiest in the scariest of scare quotes is the amateur stuff and there's a website called tennis archives which um is not set up the way i would set it up but that's not necessarily wrong but it's it, it's done a lot of the same stuff The blast of the Blast from the past has done for women's tennis, and it's more organized as a database. So you can search for tournaments, search for players, find a lot of results back to the very beginning. So we're talking 1880s or something. So that exists. Um, and they have some results from the pro tournaments, because in in the years where there was this amateur pro divide, there were there were a handful of proper pro tournaments, like the French pro or the US pro championships. Uh, and we do have results from those fairly easy to find. I think Tennis Archives has them. Some of them are even on Wikipedia. But then there's this huge gap, and this goes for for women's tennis too, though to a lesser extent, of the the barnstorming tours, where a fairly small number of players would go play somewhere differently every night for months at a time. So. I don't have numbers handy for the men, but there was a year where Althea Gibson was playing professionally, and she was touring. I think it was with a, a with a group of men, but there was also one other woman player, Carol Fagros, uh, and the two women just played each other every night, every stop of this tour. And <laughs> I would love to to have the results from this. I would love to be able to throw it into a database and see what what Elo comes out, but. I think I remember right that Althea Gibson went 114-4 and against this other woman in one tour. And you hear some similar numbers from Rod Laver's tours and things like that. Because often the players chosen weren't entirely chosen because they were the best available. I mean, the men more often were. But on the women's tours, there was often one headliner like Althea Gibson or Pauline Betts or earlier Suzanne Longlin. And then they'd find someone who was popular or really pretty or simply available uh, to be their foil. So it was a bit of a Harlem Globetrotters, Washington Generals kind of situation, which is which is a, a, a fun parallel because I think some of Althea Gibsons tours were done with the Harlem Globetrotters. So you'd get like a tennis equivalent of Harlem Globetrotters versus Washington Generals followed by the real thing, a basketball game with the Harlem Globetrotters winning again. Um, but when you start thinking about the magnitude of that gap, the fact that you have all these these one-off exhibitions essentially every night, like I have no idea how well covered they were by newspapers of the time. Uh, I would love to have them. It seems like it, it seems wrong not to 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 say that you know, Rod Laver in 1968 or 1970 was the greatest player on earth. But in 1967, we don't really know what he did. We just have this sort of we have a group of anecdotes and maybe some aggregate numbers, but um, that seems wrong, and I hope hope we can eventually fix
1: it. Let's talk about Margaret Court. So, on the women's side, while you mentioned some tours, my understanding, please correct, is basically the top women were playing the the slams, uh, playing the the tour, uh, for, for most of her career, uh, that the, the pro tour didn't have the same effect on women's tennis, uh, in the pre, pre-open era. And, you know, this is where court sits in history is, is a very big topic today. You mentioned her as the first name or, or first two names that, that really sprung out as, um, having their full record uh filled in from from the work you've been doing uh on your in your database and you mentioned that court now is at 536 weeks at number one which would just shatter any records what do you what do you make of of court now and and where she sits historically uh, which is such a big question now because of the comparisons to serena williams who's chasing court slam record but uh, you know, that we already knew, but you're filling in a lot more about, about court, the player and, and how she fared against her competition, including, uh, outside the Australian open that many of them chose not to play.
0: Yeah. That's one of the big questions and I'm sure I'll have thousands of words to write about this eventually. Um, uh, I really wish that Margaret court was not such a divisive figure now. Uh, even divisive feels kind of like a cop-out, but that's all I'm going to do. Uh, because she is so historically important. I mean, imagine imagine having some reason to just kind of avoid talking about Chris Evert. I mean, obviously there's no reason not to talk about Chris Everett or not to glorify what she achieved. But I mean, imagine what that would do to our understanding of tennis history if we just eh, we didn't really want to talk about how great Chris Everett was. And it feels like the same thing, maybe even slightly more so. Um, so it's, it's really a shame. But that just caveat aside, um, I do want to be able to talk about that and having the numbers makes it easier to do that. And it's it's it turned out to be really interesting, because as you say, the top women generally did play the slams, um, with the exception of the Australian Open. Usually at this time, the Australian Open had some foreign stars, but not all, whereas Wimbledon usually had everybody, the US National Championships usually had most everyone, uh, and the French Open was pretty close too. Um, so, I think it was the, the first year Margaret Court won. It was 1960. Um, Christine Truman and I think it was Maria Bueno, um, who we discussed earlier, they were both there. So there were a couple of foreign stars who would've been expected to win, but it wasn't, it wasn't like everybody was there. And I mean, another big factor for the beginning of Margaret Court's career is Althea Gibson, that Althea Gibson went pro. So we have no idea how they would've fared against each other or how long Althea Gibson would've remained number one. But setting that aside, it, a, so much of the conversation about Margaret Court now is this issue of the Grand Slam total. And she has 24 singles Grand Slams. A lot of those are Australian Opens. Maybe 10 of them were Australian. And you don't have to do all the work I'm doing to know that those aren't really the same thing. I mean, the 1960 Australian Open was not as hard to win as the 1960 Wimbledon or US National Championships. It wasn't as hard to win as the 1965 Australian Open, which wasn't as hard to win as the 1970 Australian Open, which wasn't as hard to win as the 1990 Australian Open. So I don't know what the discount factor is, but it's pretty steep. So I wrote something about this a while ago using extremely approximate numbers with enormous error bars saying We have no idea what Margaret Court's 24 majors are really worth, but it's a lot less than 24. So if you had to say, you know, adjusting for the value of their Grand Slam titles, who has the most Grand Slam titles in women's tennis history, it's Serena. I mean, end of story. No matter how great Margaret Court was, you cannot make the case for her based on how difficult those were to win. Even if you say that 60s women tennis was as good as contemporary women's tennis, which it's not, but you kind of have to, you have to set the eras equal for this to all, to all make any sense. Um, but, and this is such a big but, is that the majors are not the whole story. And when you take the entire career results together, that's when things change. When we say Margaret Court held the ELO number one ranking for 536 weeks, we're not saying that because that did that didn't come out of the ELO algorithm because she won those Australian opens. It came out of the Elo algorithm because she beat the top players almost every time, everywhere she played. So she went to Paris, she won the French Open, she went to the Wimbledon, she won a bunch of Wimbledon, she went to the US, she won tournaments there, she won the warmups, she won Rome. She just she beat everybody almost every time they played. And The fact that the Australian Open is one of the slams now, uh, means that we focus on that and we, we unfairly discount her record because so many of her slams were won there. But if, if you were to kind of recast the debate as who won the most tournaments out of the biggest four tournaments every year and let those four tournaments be defined by the level of competition each year, uh I have no idea what the results are. I just thought of that as, as I'm talking right now. But I wouldn't be surprised if Margaret Court has 24 of those two. And maybe, maybe that means Forrest Hills, Wimbledon, Roland, Garros, and Rome, or maybe Queen's Club or something. But whatever you put in the place of the Australian League Open, she won those two. And that's one of the great things about Elo, is it can you kind of sidestep these these silly debates about how good the Australian Open was, ultimately it doesn't matter. We don't have to give Margaret Court a lot of credit for winning the Australian Open against weak fields because she played a hundred matches a year. I mean, five of those were at the Australian Open, but she played a hundred more. So we have a tremendous amount of data that says she was the best player for an unprecedentedly long period of time. And one of the great things about having the data is being able to have this conversation, at least mostly aside from our personal feelings about marker court, and aside from this sort of hand wavy, the Australian Open wasn't the same, End of story. I mean, it's a lot more complicated than that, and we can, we can really pin down what her successes were and what they mean overall.
1: I'm in the Love 30 hole here, so I don't want to ask much more, but since you are typically the host I want to give you a chance I know this has been a project you've spent a lot more than 45 minutes on and if there's anything else you want to share any any favorite tidbits from the players who played one tournament and went on to much bigger things or or any other notable statistical findings or, or things pre- previews of the years yet to be unveiled and anything else you want to add this is this is your chance
0: oh boy. Um... So yeah, I started as love forty. Now we're going to find out if it could be like love seventy-five when I'm done talking twenty-five minutes later. Um, one thing that's really, I think, it's fascinating to a lot of tennis fans right now because we're in the Big Four era, but now we're with the or we're sort of ending the Big Four era. But in women's tennis, we're sort of increasingly post Serena, and I think people are interested in these eras where. Uh, there was no clear favorite, or contrasting those eras with ones where we had them. And I've talked a lot about Margaret Court and how dominant she was from about 1962 forward. And what's, what's really fun about these next few years I'm doing that you're going to see on the blog and on the site soon is how wide open it was. And I mentioned earlier that Althea Gibson was dominant, at least for a little while in 1957 and 1958. From the time that she she lost the number one Elo position, let me just sort this spreadsheet and looking at it and make sure I have it ready. So okay, she lost the number one Elo position in the middle of 1959. I think she'd already gone pro, so it was just a matter of her, some points fading and other people picking up. Um, in between let's see in between the middle of 1959, and the end of 1961, when Margaret Court became number one for the first time, we're talking about Two and a half years. Let me tell you what happened with the number one ranking uh, at first, It first it first taken over by Angela Mortimer uh, a British woman who was you know, Solid player at the top of her game could play multiple surfaces. She held on to it for 18 weeks Maria Bueno, who we discussed earlier, she took over for one whole week then she lost that spot to Beverly Baker Flights, an American um, who I think had had more success earlier on in the years that I haven't gotten to. She held on for six weeks, gave it back to Maria Bueno for 21 weeks. Then in the middle of 1960, around the French Open, surprise French Open winner, Zuzi, I don't even know how to say her name. She's Hungarian, um, Kormoci, something like that. She won the French Open. She took over number one for four whole weeks, gave it back to Maria Bueno. Then November, 1960, and Hayden Jones, who eventually would win Wimbledon in 1969, was a commentator for a long time. I think she's still involved uh, with the LTA. Uh, she got number one for the first time, gave it back to Maria Bueno, who gave it back to Angela Mortimer, who gave it back to Maria Bueno, who held on for most in 1961. That's how you get to Margaret Court. So two and a half years, an absolute chaotic mess at the top of the rankings. And some of those names... Um, I basically never heard of. Maybe I'd seen them in a book once, but um, I mean, you hinted that I might want to talk about some of the one-offs that uh, that I've discovered in my research, and those are fascinating. And I could indeed probably do a whole another episode on those. I've been throwing some of those into the the blog posts I'm writing about these years. Uh, right before we started this conversation, I was looking up a player who played in a New Hampshire state tournament or something in 1956. And turns out that her grandson was the skier Bode Miller. So, I mean, go figure. There's always, there's always another, another angle, but the key takeaway here is that every single one of these people, whether we're talking about number one or something else, like they're almost all interesting stories. And like, if you're listening to this, you're probably more interested in the analytical side of things. If you're reading my blog, it's probably the same story. But uh, to me, the, the historic and anecdotal aspects of this are at least as interesting. And I think most people, once they start digging a little bit, start doing a little more reading, they'll find the same things to be true. So I hope people will do that. And whether that means pitching in on, on historical efforts like this or digging up tournaments or historical photos or whatever, even if it doesn't mean that, even if it just means a little more reading, I think there's so much enjoyment to be gleaned from, from this kind of stuff uh, that goes far beyond the sort of, cold nature of a database so yeah i'll leave you with that
1: that's a great call to action and i think blast from the past is such an inspiring story and reminds me of something i've heard said about a similar project for a different sport i think it was college basketball that the the past is finite, so you can actually do it all with a big enough group and enough time, and then it's done and there, and waiting for for let's say Jeff Sackman to find it and add it to his database and and fill out the history of this great sport. So, thanks thanks for this project and all your others. And as the true host of the show, you get the chance to talk us out of this episode.
0: Yes, I get the final word. Thank you, Carl, for doing that. I can I can. We can just switch this over to a women's census history podcast and do this every week. I have a almost unlimited level of interest at this point that's showing no signs of waning. So. Thanks for doing this, Carl. Thanks everyone for, for listening and following this project as it continues to develop. And as always, thanks to the people who have done all the work to type up these results before. Um, I definitely could not have done this from, from square one. So just a reminder, if you are a fan of the show and want to follow along, we're reading a handful of summers by Gordon Forbes. Also check out dangerous exponents.com for other podcasts. You can find. All 88 previous episodes of the Tennis Abstract podcast at podcast.tennisabstract.com. Um, you can always let us know what you think on on Twitter. Otherwise, should have another episode for you in another week or two. And we'll see you then. Bye-bye.